0: Volume three, chapter eight of the Seaboard Parish. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlech. The Seaboard Parish by George Macdonald, chapter eight: The Shipwreck. Things that happen altogether have to be told one after the other. Turner and I both rushed at the narrow stair. There was not room for more than one upon it. I was first, but stumbled on the lowest step and fell. Turner put his foot on my back, jumped over me, sprang up the stair, and when I reached the top of it after him, he was meeting me with Connie in his arms, carrying her back to her room. BUT THE GIRL KEPT CRYING, PAPA, PAPA, THE SHIP, THE SHIP. MY DUTY WOKE IN ME. TURNER COULD ATTEND TO CONNIE FAR BETTER THAN I COULD. I MADE ONE SPRING TO THE WINDOW. THE MOON WAS NOT TO BE SEEN, BUT THE CLOUDS WERE THINNER, AND THE LIGHT ENOUGH WAS SOAKING THROUGH THEM TO SHOW A wave tormented MASS SOME LITTLE WAY OUT ON THE BAY. And in that one moment in which I stood looking, a shriek pierced the howling of the wind, cutting through it like a knife. I rushed bareheaded from the house-when or how the resolve was born in me I do not know-but I flew straight to the sexton's, snatched the key from the wall, crying only, Ship ashore! and rushed to the church. I remember my hand trembled so that I could hardly get the key in the lock. I made myself quieter, opened the door and, feeling my way to the tower, knelt before the keys of the bell-hammers, opened the chest, and struck them wildly, fiercely. An awful jangling, out of tune and harsh, burst into the monstrous being in the storm-vexed air. Music itself was untuned, corrupted, and returning to chaos. I struck and struck at the keys. I knew nothing of their normal use. Noise, outcry, reveille, was all I meant. In a few minutes I heard voices and footsteps from some parts of the village out of the sight of the shore. Men and women gathered to the summons. Through the door of the church which I had left open came voices in hurried question. Ship ashore was all I could answer, for what was to be done I was helpless to think. I wondered that so few appeared at the cry of the bells, after those first nobody came for what seemed a long time. I believe, however, I was beating the alarm for only a few minutes altogether, though when I t- looked back upon the time in the dark church it looked like half an hour at least. But indeed I felt so confused about all the doings of, of that night that in attempting to describe them in order, I feel as if I were walking in a dream. Still, from comparing mine with the recollected impression of others, I think I am able to give a tolerably correct result. Most of the incidents seem burnt into my memory so that nothing could destroy the depth of the impression, but the order in which they took place is none the less doubtful. A hand was laid upon my shoulder. Who is there? I said, for it was far too dark to know anyone. Percival, what is to be done? The Coast Guard is away. Nobody seems to know about anything. It is of no use to go on ringing more. Everybody is out, even to the maid servants. Come down to the shore and you will see. But is there not the lifeboat? Nobody seems to know anything about it. "'except it's no matter of use to go trying of that with such a sea on.' "'But there must be someone in command of it,' I said. "'Yes,' returned Percival, "'but there doesn't seem to be one of the crew amongst the crowd. "'All the sailor-like fellows are going about with their hands in their pockets. "'Let us make haste, then,' I said. "'Perhaps we can find out. "'Are you sure the Coast Guard have nothing to do with the lifeboat?' I believe not they have enough to do with their rockets i remember now that roxton told me he had far more confidence in his rockets than in anything a lifeboat could do upon this coast at least while we spoke we came to the bank of the canal this we had to cross in order to reach that part of the shore opposite which the wreck lay to my surprise the canal itself was in a storm HEAVING AND TOSSING AND DASHING OVER ITS BANKS. PERCIVAL, I EXCLAIMED, THE GATES ARE GONE. THE SEA HAS TORN THEM AWAY. YES, I SUPPOSE SO. WOULD GOD I COULD GET HALF A DOZEN MEN TO HELP ME. I HAVE BEEN DOING WHAT I COULD, BUT I HAVE NO INFLUENCE AMONGST THEM. WHAT DO YOU MEAN? I ASKED. WHAT COULD YOU DO IF YOU HAD A THOUSAND MEN AT YOUR COMMAND? HE MADE ME NO ANSWER FOR A FEW MOMENTS during which we were hurrying on for the bridge over the canal then he said they regard me only as a meddling stranger i suppose for i have been able to get no useful answer they are all excited but nobody is doing anything they must know about it a great deal better than we i returned and we must take care not to do them the injustice of supposing they are not ready to do all that can be done Percival was silent yet again. The record of our conversation looks as quiet on the paper as if they had been talking in a curtained room, but all the time the ocean was raving in my very ear, and the awful tragedy was going on in the dark behind us. The wind was almost as loud as ever, but the rain had quite ceased, and when we reached the bridge the moon shone out white as if aghast at what she had at length succeeded in pushing the clouds aside that she might see. Awe and helplessness oppressed us. Having crossed the canal, we turned to the shore. There was little of it left, for the waves had rushed up almost to the village. The sand and the roads, every garden wall, every window that looked seaward, was crowded with gazers but it was a wonderfully quiet crowd or seemed so at least for the noise of the wind and the waves filled the whole vault and what was spoken was heard only in the ear to which it was spoken when we came amongst them we heard only a murmur as of more articulated confusion one turn and we saw the center of strife and anxiety the heart of the storm that filled heaven and earth upon which all the blasts and the billows broke and raved. Out there in the moonlight lay a mass of something whose place was discernible by the flashing of the waves as they burst over it. She was far above low-water mark, lay nearer the village by a furlong than the spot where we had taken our last dinner on the shore. It was strange to think that yesterday the spot lay bare to human feet, where now so many men and women were isolated in a howling waste of angry waters. For the cry of women came plainly to our ears, and we were helpless to save them. It was terrible to have to do nothing. Percival went about hurriedly, talking to this one and that one, as if he still thought something might be done. He turned to me. "'Do try, Mr. Walton.' and find out for me where the captain of the lifeboat is i turned to a sailor-like man who stood at my elbow and asked him it's no use i assure you sir he answered no boat could live in such a sea it would be throwing away the men's lives do you know where the captain lives percival asked if i did i tell you it is of no use are you the captain yourself returned percival "'What is that to you?' he answered, surly now. "'I know my own business.' The same moment several of the crowd nearest the edge of the water made a simultaneous rush into the surf and lay hold of something, which, as they returned drawing it to the shore, I saw to be a human form. It was the body of a woman, alive or dead, I could not tell. I could just see the long hair hanging from the head, which itself hung backward helplessly as they bore her up the bank. I saw, too, a white face, and I can recall no more. "'Run, Percival,' I said, and fetch Turner. She may not be dead yet.' "'I can't,' answered Percival. You had better go yourself, Mr. Walton. He spoke hurriedly. I saw he must have some reason for answering me so abruptly. HE WAS TALKING TO A YOUNG FELLOW WHOM I RECOGNIZED AS ONE OF THE MOST dissolute IN THE VILLAGE, AND JUST AS I TURNED TO GO THEY WALKED AWAY TOGETHER. I SPED HOME AS FAST AS I COULD. IT WAS EASIER TO GET ALONG NOW THAT THE MOON shone. I FOUND THAT TURNER HAD GIVEN CONNIE A COMPOSING DRAFT, AND THAT HE HAD GOOD HOPE SHE WOULD AT LEAST BE NOTHING THE WORSE FOR THE MARVELOUS RESULT OF HER EXCITEMENT. She was asleep, exhausted, and her mother was watching by her side. It seemed strange that she could sleep, but Turner said it was the safest reaction, partly, however, occasioned by what he had given her. In her sleep she kept on talking about the ship. We hurried back to see if anything could be done for the woman. As we went up the side of the canal we perceived a dark body meeting us. The clouds had again obscured, though not quite hidden, the moon. And we could not at first make out what it was. When we came nearer it showed itself a body of men hauling something along. Yes, it was the lifeboat, afloat on the troubled waves of the canal. Each man seated in his own place, his hands quiet upon his oar, his cork-jacket braced about him, his feet out before him ready to pull the moment they should pass beyond the broken gates of the lock-out on the awful tossing of the waves. They sat very silent, and the men on the path towed them swiftly along. The moon uncovered her face for a moment, and shone upon the faces of the two of the rowers. "'Percival! Joe!' I cried. "'All right, sir,' said Joe. "'Does your wife know of it, Joe?' I almost gasped. To be sure, answered Joe, it's the first chance I've had of returning thanks for her. Please God, I shall see her again to-night. That's good, Joe. Trust in God, my men, whether you sink or swim. ay, ay, sir, they answered as one man. This is your doing, Percival, I said, turning and walking alongside of the boat for a little way. "'It's more Jim Allen's,' said Percival. "'If I hadn't got hold of him, I couldn't have done anything.' "'God bless you, Jim Allen,' I said. "'You'll be a better man after this, I think.' "'Don't know, sir,' returned Jim cheerily. "'It's harder work than pulling an oar.' The captain himself was on board, Percival having persuaded Jim Allen the two had gone about in the crowd seeking proselytes. In a wonderfully short space they had found almost all the crew, each fresh one picking up another or more, till at length the captain, protesting against the folly of it, gave in, and, once having yielded, was like a true Englishman, as much in earnest as any of them. The places of two who were missing were supplied by Percival and Joe, the latter of whom would listen to no remonstrance. "'I have nothing to lose,' Percival had said. "'You have a young wife, Joe. "'I have everything to win,' Joe had returned. "'The only thing that makes me feel a bit faint-hearted over it is that I'm afraid it's not my duty that drives me to it, "'but the praise of men, least the ways of a woman. "'What would Aggie think of me if I was to let them drown out there "'and go to my bed and sleep?' "'I must go.' "'Very well, Joe.' returned Percival, "'I dare say you are right. You can row, of course. I can row hard, and do as I am told,' said Joe. "'All right,' said Percival. "'Come along.' This I heard afterwards. We were now hurrying against the wind towards the mouth of the canal, some twenty men hauling on the tow-rope. The critical moment would be in the clearing of the gates, I thought, some parts of which might remain swinging.' But they encountered no difficulty there, as I heard afterwards, for I remembered that this was not my post and turned again to follow the doctor. God bless you, my men, I said, and left them. They gave a great hurrah and sped on to meet their fate. I found Turner in the little public house, whither they had carried the body. The woman was quite dead. I fear it is an immigrant vessel, he said why do you think so i asked in some consternation come and look at the body he said it was that of a woman about twenty tall and finely formed the face was very handsome but it did not need the evidence of the hands to prove that she was one of our sisters who have to labour for their bread what should such a girl be doing on board ship but going out to america or australia "'To her lover, perhaps,' said Turner. "'You see she has a locket on her neck. "'I hope nobody will dare to take it off. "'Some of these people are not far derived "'from those who thought a wreck a godsend.' "'A sound of many feet was at the door "'just as we turned to leave the house. "'They were bringing another body, "'that of an elderly woman, dead, quite dead. "'Turner had ceased examining her, "'and we were going out together.' when, through all the tumult of the wind and waves, a fierce hiss, vindictive, wrathful, tore the air over our heads. Far up, seaward, something like a fiery snake shot up from the high ground on the right side of the bay, over the vessel, and into the water beyond it. "'Thank God that's the Coast Guard!' I cried. We rushed through the village and up on the heights where they had planted their apparatus. A little crowd surrounded them how dismal the sea looked in the struggling moonlight i felt as if i was wandering in the mazes of an evil dream but when i approached the cliff and saw down below the great mass of the vessel's hulk with the waves breaking every moment upon her side i felt the reality awful indeed now and then there would come a kind of lull in the wild sequence of rolling waters and then i fancied for a moment that i saw how she rocked on the bottom her masts had all gone by the board and a perfect chaos of cordage floated and swung in the waves that broke over her but her bowsprit remained entire and shot out into the foamy dark crowded with human beings the first rocket had missed they were preparing to fire another. Roxton stood with his telescope in his hand ready to watch the result. This is a terrible job, sir, he said when I approached him. I doubt if we should save one of them. There's the lifeboat, I cried, as a dark spot appeared on the waters approaching the vessel from the other side. The lifeboat, he returned with contempt. "'You don't mean to say they've got her out. "'She'll only add to the mischief. "'We'll have to save her, too.' "'She was still some way from the vessel "'and in comparatively smooth water. "'But between her and the hull "'the sea raved in madness. "'The billows rowed over each other "'in pursuit, as it seemed, "'of some invisible prey. "'Another hiss as of concentrated hatred.' and the second rocket was shooting its parabola through the dusky air. Roxton raised his telescope to his eye the same moment. "'Over her stern!' he cried. "'There's a fellow getting down from the cathead to run aft.' "'Stop! Stop!' he shouted involuntarily. "'There's an awful wave on your quarter!' His voice was swallowed in the roaring of the storm. I fancy I could distinguish a dark something-shoot from the bows towards the stern. But the huge wave fell upon the wreck. The same moment Roxon exclaimed, so coolly as to amaze me, forgetting how men must come to regard familiar things without discomposure. He's gone, I said so. The next'll have better luck, I hope. That man came ashore alive, though. All were forward of the mast. The bowsprit, when I looked through Roxton's telescope, was shapeless as with a swarm of bees. Now and then a single shriek rose upon the wild air. But now my attention was fixed on the lifeboat. She had gone into the wildest of the broken water. At one moment she was down in a huge cleft, the next balanced like a beam on the knife edge of a wave tossed about hither and thither, as if the waves delighted in mocking the rudder, but hitherto she had shipped no water. I am here drawing upon the information I have since received, but I did not see how a huge wave, following close upon the back of that on which she floated, rushed, towered up over her, toppled, and fell upon the lifeboat with tons of water. The moon was shining brightly enough to show this with tolerable distinctness. The boat vanished. The next moment there she was, floating helplessly about, like a living thing, stunned by the blow of a falling wave. The struggle was over, as far as I could see. Every man was in his place, but the boat drifted away before the storm shorewards, and the men let her drift. Were they all killed as they sat? I thought of my whinny, and returned to Roxton. That wave has done for them, he said. I told you it was no use. There they go. Well, what is the matter, I asked. The men are sitting every man in his place. I think so, he answered. Two were swept overboard, but they caught the ropes and got in again. But don't you see they have no oars? That wave had broken every one of them off at the rowlocks and now they were as helpless as a sponge. I turned and ran. Before I reached the brow of the hill, another rocket was fired and fell wide shorewards, partly because the wind blew with fresh fury at the very moment. I heard Roxton say, She's breaking up, it's no use. The last did for her. I hurried off for the other side of the bay to see what became of the lifeboat. I heard a great cry from the vessel as I reached the brow of the hill and turned for a parting glance. The dark mass had vanished and the waves were rushing at will over the space. When I got to the shore the crowd was less. Many were running, like myself, towards the other side, anxious about the lifeboat. I hastened after them, for Porcival and Joe filled my heart. They led the way to the little beach in front of the parsonage. It would be well for the crew if they were driven ashore there, for it was the only spot where they could escape being dashed on the rocks. There was a crowd before the garden wall, a bustle, a great confusion of speech. The people, men and women, boys and girls, were all gathered about the crew of the lifeboat, which already lay, as if it knew nothing but repose on the grass within. "'Percival!' I cried, making my way through the crowd. There was no answer. "'Joe Harper!' I cried again, searching with eager eyes, amongst the crew, to whom everybody was talking. Still there was no answer, and from the disjointed phrases I heard, I could gather nothing. All at once I saw Winnie looking over the wall, despair in her face, HER WIDE EYES SEARCHING wildly THROUGH THE CROWD. I COULD NOT LOOK AT HER TILL I KNEW THE WORST. THE CAPTAIN WAS TALKING TO OLD COOMBS. I WENT UP TO HIM. AS SOON AS HE SAW ME, HE GAVE ME HIS ATTENTION. WHERE IS MR. PERCIVAL? I ASKED, WITH ALL THE CALMNESS I COULD ASSUME. HE TOOK ME BY THE ARM AND DREW ME OUT OF THE CROWD, NEARER TO THE WAVES AND A LITTLE NEARER TO THE MOUTH OF THE CANAL. THE TIDE HAD FALLEN CONSIDERABLY, ELSE THERE WOULD NOT HAVE BEEN STANDING-ROOM, NARROW AS IT WAS, WHICH THE PEOPLE NOW OCCUPIED. HE POINTED IN THE DIRECTION OF THE CASTLE ROCK. IF YOU MEAN THE STRANGER GENTLEMAN, AND JOE HARPER, THE BLACKSMITH, I INTERPOSED. THEY'RE THERE, SIR. YOU DON'T MEAN THOSE TWO, JUST THOSE TWO ARE DROWNED, I SAID. NO, SIR, I DON'T SAY THAT, BUT GOD KNOWS THEY HAVE LITTLE CHANCE. I could not help thinking that God might know they were not in the smallest danger, but I only begged him to tell me where they were. Do you see that schooner there, just between you and the Castle Rock? No, I answered, I can see nothing. Stay. I fancy I can, but I am always ready to fancy I see a thing when I am told it is there. I can't say I see it. I can, though. The gentleman you mean, and Joe Harper too are, I believe, on board of that schooner. Is she aground? Oh dear no, sir. She's a light craft and can swim there well enough. If she be aground she'd have been ashore in pieces hours ago, but whether she'll ride it out, God only knows, as I said afore. However did they get aboard of her? I never saw her from the heights opposite. YOU WERE ALL TAKEN UP BY THE SHIP ASHORE, YOU SEE, SIR, AND SHE DON'T MAKE MUCH SHOW IN THIS LIGHT, BUT THERE SHE IS, AND THEY'RE ABOARD OF HER, AND THIS IS HOW IT WAS. HE WENT ON TO GIVE ME HIS PART OF THE STORY, BUT I WILL NOW GIVE THE WHOLE OF IT MYSELF, AS I HAVE GATHERED AND PIECED IT TOGETHER. TWO MEN HAD BEEN SWEPT OVERBOARD, AS ROCKTON SAID. ONE OF THEM WAS PERCIVAL but they had both got on board again to drift oarless with the rest now in the windless valley now aloft on a tempest-swept hill of water away towards a goal they knew not neither had chosen and which yet they could by no means avoid a little out of the full force of the current and not far from the channel of the small stream which when the tide was out float across the sands nearly from the canal gates to the castle rock lay a little schooner belonging to a neighboring port Boscastle, castle i think which caught in the storm had been driven into the bay when it was almost dark some considerable time before the great ship the master however knew the ground well the current carried him a little out of the wind and would have thrown him upon the rocks next but he managed to drop anchor just in time and the cable held and there the little schooner hung in the skirts of the storm with the jagged teeth of the rocks within an arrow's flight in the excitement of the great wreck no one had observed the danger of the little coasting bird if the cable held till the tide went down the anchor did not drag she would be safe. If not, she must be dashed to pieces. In the schooner were two men and a boy. Two men had been washed overboard an hour or so before they reached the bay. When they had dropped their anchor, they lay down exhausted on the deck. Indeed, they were so worn out that they had been unable to drop their sheet anchor, and were holding on only by their best bower had they not been a good deal out of the wind this would have been useless even if it held she was in danger of having her bottom stove in by bumping against the sands as the tide went out but that they had not to think of yet the moment they lay down they fell fast asleep in the middle of the storm while they slept it increased in violence suddenly one of them awoke and thought he saw a vision of angels for over his head faces looked down upon him from the air that is from the top of a great wave the same moment he heard a voice two of the angels dropped on the deck beside him and the rest vanished those angels were Percival and joe and angels they were for they came just in time as all angels do never a moment too soon or a moment too late the schooner was dragging her anchor this was soon plain even to the less experienced eyes of the said angels but it did not take them many minutes now to drop their strongest anchor and they were soon riding in perfect safety for some time to come one of the two men was the son of old coombs the sexton who was engaged to marry the girl I have spoken of in the end of the fourth chapter, in the second volume. Percival's account of the matter, as far as he was concerned, was that as they drifted helplessly along, he suddenly saw from the top of a huge wave the little vessel below him. They were, in fact, almost upon the rigging. The wave on which they rode swept the quarter-deck of the schooner. Percival says the captain of the lifeboat called out, "Aboard!" The captain said he remembered nothing of a sort. If he did, he must have meant it for the men on the schooner to get on board the lifeboat. Percival, however, who had a most chivalrous, ought I not to say Christian notion of obedience, fancying the captain meant them to board the schooner, sprang at her fore shrouds. Thereupon, the wave sweeping them along the schooner's side, Joe sprang at the main shrouds, and they dropped on the deck together. But, although my reader is at ease about their fate, we who were in the affair were anything but easy at the time corresponding to this point of the narrative. It was a terrible night we passed through. When I returned, which was almost instantly... FOR I COULD DO NOTHING BY STARING OUT IN THE DIRECTION OF THE SCHOONER, I FOUND THAT THE CROWD WAS NEARLY GONE. ONE LITTLE GROUP ALONE REMAINED BEHIND, THE CENTER OF WHICH WAS A WOMAN. WINNIE HAD DISAPPEARED. THE WOMAN WHO REMAINED BEHIND WAS AGNES HARPER. THE MOON SHONE OUT CLEAR AS I APPROACHED THE GROUP. INDEED THE CLOUDS WERE BREAKING UP AND DRIFTING AWAY OFF THE HEAVENS. The storm had raved out its business and was departing into the past. Agnes, I said. Yes, sir, she answered, and looked up as if waiting for a command. There was no color in her cheeks or her lips. At least it seemed so in the moonlight. Only in her eyes. But she was perfectly calm. She was leaning against a low wall with her hands clasped but hanging quietly down before her. "'The storm is breaking up, Agnes,' I said. "'Yes, sir,' she answered in the same still tone. Then, after just a moment's pause, she spoke out her heart. "'Joe is at his duty, sir.' I have given the utterance a point of interrogation. Whether she meant that point, I am not quite sure. "'Indubitably,' I returned, "'I have such faith in Joe that i should be sure of that in any case at all events he's not taking care of his own life and if one is to go wrong i would ten thousand times rather err on that side but i'm sure joe has been doing right and nothing else then there's nothing to be said sir is there she returned with a sigh that sounded as of relief i presume some of the surrounding condolers had been giving her Job's comfort by blaming her husband. Do you remember, Agnes, what the Lord said to his mother when she reproached him with having left her and his father? I can't remember anything at this moment, sir, was her touching answer. Then I will tell you, he said. Why did you look for me? Didn't you know that I must be about something my father had given me to do?' Now, Joe was and is about his father's business, and you must not be anxious about him. There could be no better reason for not being anxious. Agnes was a very quiet woman, when, without a word, she took my hand and kissed it. I felt what a depth there was in the feeling she could not utter. I did not withdraw my hand, for I knew that would be to rebuke her love for Joe. "'Will you come in and wait?' I said indefinitely no thank you sir i must go to my mother god will look after joe won't he sir as sure there is a god agnes i said and she went away without another word i put my hand on top of the wall and jumped over i started back with terror for i had almost alighted on the body of a woman lying there the first insane suggestion was that it had been cast ashore but the next moment I knew that it was my own Winnie. She had not even fainted. She was lying with her handkerchief stuffed in her mouth to keep her from screaming. When I uttered her name, she rose, and without looking at me, walked away towards the house. I followed. She went straight to her own room and shut the door. I went to find her mother. She was with Connie, who was now awake, lying pale and frightened. I told Ethelwyn that Percival and Joe were on board the little schooner which was holding on by her anchor, that Winnie was in terror about Percival, that I had found her lying on the wet grass, and that she must get her into a warm bath into bed. We went together to her room. She was standing in the middle of the floor, with her hands pressed against her temples. "'Winnie,' I said, "'our friends are not drowned.' I think you will see them quite safe in the morning. Pray to God for them." She did not hear a word. "'Leave her with me,' said Ethelwyn, proceeding to undress her, and tell Nurse to bring up the large bath. There is plenty of hot water in the boiler. I gave orders to that effect, not knowing what might happen. Winnie shuddered as her mother said this, but I waited no longer for when Ethelwyn spoke, every one felt her authority. I obeyed her, and then went to Connie's room. Do you mind being left alone a little while? I asked her. No, papa, only. Are they all drowned? she said with a shudder. I hope not, my dear, but be sure of the mercy of God, whatever you fear. You must rest in him, my love, for he is life, and will conquer death both in the soul and in the body. I am not thinking of myself, papa, I know that, my dear, but God is thinking of you and every creature that he has made, and for our sake you must be quiet in heart, that you may get better and be able to help us. I will try, papa," she said, and turning slowly on her side she lay quite still. Dora and the boys were all fast asleep, for it was very late. I cannot, however, say what hour it was. Telling Nurse to be on watch because Connie was alone, I went again to the beach. I called first, however, to inquire after Agnes. I found her quite composed, sitting with her parents by the fire, none of them doing anything, scarcely speaking only listening intently to the sounds of the storm, now beginning to die away. I next went to the place where I had left Turner. Five bodies laid there, and he was busy with a sixth. The surgeon of the place was with him, and they quite expected to recover this man. I then went down to the sands. An officer of the revenue was taking charge of all that came ashore, chests and bales and everything. For a week the sea went on casting out the fragments of that which she had destroyed. I have heard that, for years after, the shifting of the sands would now and then discover things buried that night by the waves. All the next day the bodies kept coming ashore, some peaceful as in sleep, others broken and mutilated. Many were cast upon other parts of the coast. Some four or five only, all men were recovered. It was strange to me how I got used to it. The first horror over, the cry that yet another body had come awoke only a gentle pity. No more dismay or shuddering. But finding I could be of no use, I did not wait longer than just till the morning began to dawn with a pale, ghastly light over the seething, raging sea. For the sea raged on although the wind had gone down there were many strong men about with two surgeons and all the coast guard who were well accustomed to the similar though not such extensive destruction the houses along the shore were at the disposal of any who wanted aid the parsonage was at some distance AND I CONFESS THAT WHEN I THOUGHT OF THE STATE OF MY DAUGHTERS AS WELL AS REMEMBERED FORMER INFLUENCES UPON MY WIFE, I WAS VERY GLAD TO THINK THERE WAS NO NECESSITY FOR carrying THITHER ANY OF THOSE WHOM THE WAVES CAST ON THE SHORE. WHEN I REACHED HOME AND FOUND WINNIE QUIETER AND CONNIE AGAIN ASLEEP, I walked out along our own downs till I came whence I could see the little schooner still safe at anchor. From her position I concluded, correctly, as I found afterwards, that they had let out her cable far enough to allow her to reach the bed of the little stream, where the tide would leave her more gently. She was clearly out of all danger now, and if Percival and Joe had got safe on board of her. WE MIGHT CONFIDENTLY EXPECT TO SEE THEM BEFORE MANY HOURS WERE PAST. I WENT HOME WITH THE GOOD NEWS. FOR A FEW MOMENTS I DOUBTED WHETHER I SHOULD TELL WINNIE, FOR I COULD NOT KNOW WITH ANY CERTAINTY THAT PERCIVAL WAS IN THE SCHOONER, BUT PRESENTLY I RECALLED FORMER CONCLUSIONS TO THE EFFECT THAT WE HAVE NO RIGHT TO MODIFY GOD'S FACTS FOR FEAR OF WHAT MAY BE TO COME a little hope founded on the present appearance even if that hope should never be realized may be the very means of enabling a soul to bear the weight of a sorrow past the point at which it would otherwise break down i would therefore tell winnie and let her share my expectations of deliverance i think she had been half asleep for when i entered her room she started up in a sitting posture looking wild, and putting her hands to her head. I have brought you good news, Winnie, I said. I have been out on the downs, and there is light enough now to see that the little schooner is quite safe. What schooner? she asked, listlessly, and lay down again, her eyes still staring, awfully unappeased. Why, the schooner, they say Percival got on board. He isn't drowned then, she cried with a choking voice and put her hands to her face and burst into tears and sobs. "'Winnie,' I said, "'look what your faithlessness brings upon you. Everybody but you has known all night that Percival and Joe Harper are probably quite safe. They may be ashore in a couple of hours, but you don't know it. He may be drowned yet. Of course there is room for doubt, but none for despair.' see what a poor helpless creature hopelessness makes you but how can i help it papa she asked piteously i'm made so but as she spoke the dawn was clear upon the height of her forehead you are not made yet as i am always telling you and god has ordained that you shall have a hand in your own making you have to consent TO DESIRE WHAT YOU KNOW FOR A FAULT SHALL BE SET RIGHT BY HIS LOVING WILL AND SPIRIT. I DON'T KNOW GOD, PAPA. AH, MY DEAR, THAT IS WHERE IT ALL LIES. YOU DO NOT KNOW HIM, OR YOU WOULD NEVER BE WITHOUT HOPE. BUT WHAT AM I TO DO TO KNOW HIM, SHE ASKED, RISING ON HER ELBOW. THE SAVING POWER OF HOPE WAS ALWAYS WORKING IN HER. SHE WAS ONCE MORE TURNING HER FACE TOWARDS THE LIFE. READ AS YOU'VE NEVER READ BEFORE ABOUT CHRIST JESUS, MY LOVE. READ WITH THE EXPRESS OBJECT OF FINDING OUT WHAT GOD IS LIKE, THAT YOU MAY KNOW HIM AND MAY TRUST HIM, AND NOW GIVE YOURSELF TO HIM, AND HE WILL GIVE YOU SLEEP. WHAT ARE WE TO DO, I SAID TO MY WIFE, IF PERCIVAL CONTINUE SILENT? FOR EVEN IF HE BE IN LOVE WITH HER, I DOUBT IF HE WILL SPEAK. WE MUST LEAVE ALL THAT, HARRY she answered she was turning on myself the counsel i had been giving winnie it is strange how easily we can tell our brother what he ought to do and yet when the case comes to be our own do precisely as we had rebuked him for doing i lay down and fell fast asleep End of chapter eight